Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Journalist Petra Stock is a cadet with the Centre for Advancing Journalism and uh, is the Melbourne Press Club 2021 Student Journalist of the Year. I'm just going to keep saying this, Petra, because <laughs> it's very, very cool. And she's also our um, Freedom of Information correspondent for The Great Vine on Triple R. And she was with us last month uh, talking about her very first Freedom of Information investigations. And this morning, we're going to hear about what she found out when seeking information from the Education Department about the experiences of remote learning in Victoria. And Petra, it's so good to have you back. Thanks for being our correspondent. Ah, oh, thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. And um, well, take, take us back to your sort of curiosity around remote learning and Victorian classrooms. Um, what were you seeking to find out last year or the, was it the year before? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it feels like an age ago, right? But back in 2020, um, Probably anyone with school-aged children will remember that period in late March, early April, where all the kids went home at the end of Term 1 and then Term 2 began and for most parts of Australia that was online. Um, so it was for my two primary school-aged kids as well. Um, and... You know, it was an interesting time, I guess, at that point in the pandemic. (laughs) We didn't know what was to come. Um, But what interested me uh, initially about that was um, the use of digital platforms in that remote learning. So um, I guess I knew that there were certain rules that schools and other government agencies had to follow in terms of the data they collect about Um, people that government engages with, including kids in schools. And I also knew, I guess, that digital platforms collect a lot of data on us when we use them. Um, And in this case, there was that combination of those two things in primary schools and high schools all around Victoria and the rest of the country with probably a whole lot of kids using platforms that they'd never engaged with and um, I guess I was curious about the data and privacy and security kind of implications of that. Yeah, because it all happened in such a hurry too, didn't it? And we know, you know, there was, was it Zoom bombing and things like this happened in, in meetings around the world when workplaces that weren't used to using those technologies were and then strangers were getting hold of links and turning up in in these meetings. Um, you know, what did you find when you started to put in requests to the education department about what happened with, yeah, the use of technologies like, like Zoom? So I think initially I put in a request around June in 2020. So we'd already had, I think, you know, almost a whole term of, of using these um, types of platforms in schools. And like many of my kind of FOI journeys, um, I started the first sort of um, requests that I put in were pretty broad, um, basically um, asking for documents like briefings, um, internal emails that address the privacy and security aspects of digital platforms Um, and I was interested too in how they decided which platforms to use because it seemed as if there was just 
like any number of different um, platforms. Yeah, because it could have been Microsoft or yeah, Google. Like, there's there's a whole lot that that schools could choose from. By in theory, yeah. Um, and so I started broad, but. Um, as I was mentioning last time, I usually try and think of all the different agencies who might know something about a, a topic. So, of course, the Department of Education in Victoria was an obvious place. Um, so I definitely put a request in there, but also um, put in a similar sort of request to the eSafety Commissioner, the Federal eSafety Commissioner, um, and the privacy kind of bodies that oversee um, at the federal level and at the state level. So that's the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner and the Office of the Victorian Information Commissioner. Um, and that was really interesting. I mean, it takes a few months <laughs> before you get anything back. All the while the back. kids are still online learning. Yeah, <laughs> there's pl- plenty to distract you um, while you're waiting for your FOI requests. Um, but what came back from that initial one was that um, basically internally at the Department of Education, they had identified that Zoom was a medium to high um, privacy and security risk, but then had t- taken a, a number of weeks, and that you know we're in that rush for schools moving online before advising schools, um, basically not to use it. And what that meant, in fact, they only published the kind of advice against using Zoom the day before schools started online. So um, schools that had already decided to use that platform, went ahead. And in fact, about one in four teachers ended up using Zoom. It was quite a common platform. Um, So there were these internal documents that were kind of flagging the risk. And then the sort of bureaucratic process took its time before teachers who had to, you know, deliver online learning actually got the information. So that was the start. Um, And then I guess over time, one of the things that um, a lot of people said in relation to that article was, well, Zoom wasn't a recommended platform. Um, Anyway, the department recommends WebEx and Google Docs and they had 12 platforms that the department recommended. So so then (laughs) I can't help myself. I was like, oh, well, I wonder what happens with, say, Google Docs uh, and the G Suite um, platform. So so that was my next, um, that was the next thing I started looking into. And um, that one was interesting um, because I put in a similar request uh, about Google following. um, So for the first one, I ended up writing up a story which got published in The Age um, about the Zoom warnings and so on. And then following up, um, looking into Google specifically, um, what I got back I definitely was not expecting. Um, I thought what I might get might be sort of parent complaints about you know, concerns about using a platform. But what I actually got um, was a whole lot of official correspondence between the Office of the 
Victorian Information Commissioner, which was responding to a parent complaint about... The, it's all very technical, but the way the Google email address system had been set up, um, which was basically that there was kind of one giant email directory for all students and all teachers in Victoria, something like nearly 300,000 student emails um, that, you know, pretty easily guessable, mostly had a format that went sort of first initial, last name, at um, so this huge email directory. So that was one kind of part of what came back from that. Um, and then the second part was some incident reports and... Um, there were a number of incident reports that showed people dropping into Google Meetings, so kids doing their classes online on Google, strangers dropping into those meetings. Um, and in one particular case, a stranger who joined a Google Classroom um, said some inappropriate things. It doesn't say exactly what that person said and also indecently expose themselves in that classroom. In, so, in, in a Victorian school meeting, full on. And so with, with regards to what you found out, I, I, I'm imagining, and I don't know, the, these things have been sort of resolved and dealt with because we're what, you know almost two years later, I guess now. God, this pandemic keeps going. But that's shocking. And also it really raises a whole lot of questions around, you know, everything, so many things were in a rush, whether training could be provided that all of a sudden you've got teachers that are super skilled in front of classrooms having to be online. And we heard about the sort of work-life balance issues at the time, but we didn't hear so much about these sorts of potential risks and issues, did we, at that yeah, time? Yeah, and I mean, you, you've got a feel for, for teachers. I mean, if you've ever sort of considered whether or not you should accept the privacy con conditions for a particular platform, if you've ever taken the time to go and look at one of those kind of privacy statements, they're absolutely impossible to understand as an adult. Um, so it's understandable that teachers essentially just use these and did the best they could um, with the platforms that were available to them. Um, there's no way you could imagine that they could imagine that that scenario No, I mean, was it widespread or was, were these sort of one-off type incidents that, that um, you gained through Freedom of Information, um, Petra? Well, so that was interesting. So, and then some of the feed... So I also wrote that story up as an article um, because I was able to uh, track the complaint about the email addresses to um, a very um, uh, hi highly followed person on Twitter called Asha Wolf. Um, so they were able to talk to me um, about that complaint and how it had been dealt with or parts also that hadn't been resolved. Um, but again, people said, well, WebEx is the department's preferred platform for online learning. So, aha, <laughs> um, can't help myself. I put in an FOI request about WebEx. Um, so in that case with Google, there was sort of one very serious incident which actually um, became part of a police investigation. Um, 
WebEx when I put in that FOI request. Um, I actually did two at once but only reported on the WebEx side. There was something like 13 incidents um, across Victorian classrooms. Some details from that FOI request were removed. So, for example, I couldn't see which individual school um, something had occurred at, but, but there was... 13 incidences and others blacked out, so I don't know. Um, but, y yeah, actually, I think that's quite widespread and quite concerning. Um, whether the department would see it that way, I don't know. Yeah, Petra Stocks with us, uh, our um, triple R FOI, Freedom of Information correspondent, and um, we're catching up with her regularly. Um, I, I guess the, the motivation is to raise awareness of the way that Freedom of Information claims um, uh, investigations can be made. Uh, it's open to everybody to make these sorts of in, um, inquiries and some of the um, the activities that Petra's been involved with personally over the last few years or the last decade, really, uh, since you've been interested in these things. And um, recently, Petra on ABC 7:30, they had a look at uh, what's what happened when education flipped online for the months that it did in different parts of the country, and particularly here in Victoria, and raising questions around the commercialisation of education. So it, it is an area that is of ongoing interest at the moment. Yeah, and that was really interesting because I guess what I was able to find and show through FOI is that there were consequences from. Um, using these online platforms for education. But one of the things I knew was the way that technology companies collect data. And so obviously, in a lot of cases, we're doing that with children um, who they wouldn't have previous to the pandemic had access to. Um, but that was really interesting that ABC report was able to show that a number of these platforms, even ones that claimed they weren't collecting data on children, were actually doing that and sharing that with third parties, which under the Victorian Privacy and Data Protection Act is actually not really okay. Um, and that was from that was an investigation that started early in 2021, so a whole year into the pandemic, and we still haven't sorted it out. And, I mean, is there a sense of what might come? I mean, um, is it of that what the education department might choose to do with the information that you've, you've gained but also that others are, are looking at about the consequence and I guess the, the, the tale of, of, um, of issues, I guess, that, that have come from remote learning and flipping so many hundreds of thousands of students online? There are things that the department could do. I mean, um, when I spoke, interviewed the Office of the Victorian Information Commissioner, for example, early on um, when I was looking in that first report that looked at Zoom, um, he talked about, well, these companies have all this data on children, but, you know, they should be asked to delete it, essentially, um, so that ongoing... There isn't that sort of, um, yeah, f uh, sort of collection of information about children. Um, there's nothing stopping the department requesting that now, I don't think. Um, a lot of it's out of parents' hands. So even if, um, say, your ch a child is using Google Classroom uh, and their data is um, being collected through that and often, you know, the way kids do their schoolwork, 
does sometimes involve providing personal uh, information about themselves depending on what the assignment is or how they respond in class. They may reveal actually sensitive information about themselves. Um, but as a parent, if your child's using Google Classroom, you, you actually can't control that yourself. You have to request the school to do something. So um, it is a little bit out of parents' hands. But I, I think there are things that could be done. Um, it was interesting with that ABC report. Um, it, it seemed as if the Minister for Education in Victoria uh, was expressing some surprise, but... We know that, for example, the eSafety Commissioner warned about this problem back in 2019. We know that the Office of the Victorian Information Commissioner did a big report on platforms in schools early in 2020, um, which said that the way schools were using digital platforms was inconsistent with the Victorian Act um, we know they had this complaint from Asha Wolf, which talked about the use of the this massive database of student emails. There's pl been plenty of opportunities um, to try and figure out a solution. Yeah, watch this space. I mean, just interestingly, uh, the state of the... FOI, State of FOI, Freedom of Information Report came out from that agency that you're talking about, the Office of the Victorian Information Commissioner. I'm sure, I'm sure you've read it. <laughs> what, what does it tell us? I mean, what, what state is our FOI system in, in Victoria? I found that report really interesting. Um, there was a few numbers that I thought were really interesting. For example, Victoria had more than 40,000 FOI requests in the the most recent year that that report was covering, um, which was, I don't know how many I was expecting, but that seemed like a lot. And they were what, saying... What proportion were yours, Tasha? No, <laughs> definitely less than 1%. <laughs> um and apparently Victoria is the state with the highest number of FOI requests. So I think that I kind of think that's good if people are putting in FOI requests. They're using the system that's there to make governments be transparent about their operations. Um, but what that report also showed was that um, the timeliness for response is getting worse. There's more complaints. There's more VCAT requests for review, um, so things, people's experience of using the system is getting worse. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, you know, it is hard to do business everywhere at the moment with people getting and sick and the like, but it is really interesting to see if the, the number of requests are rising and the response, that the system's not set up to respond to the number of requests they're getting, that, that is something to watch, definitely. Um, maybe we can pick up some more of that when we've got a bit more time next time because we will see you in a month, Petra, <laughs> uh, for your next installation of um, our FOI correspondent segment here on uh, The Grapevine on Triple R. And, yeah, it's really great to see you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. 
On one hand, we have one of the lowest unemployment rates in recent history and the Fair Work Commission just delivered a 5.2 increase to the national minimum wage. And on the other, uh, many people are under pressure with inflation rising and the basics like housing, energy and food all going up in price. And it's great to have Emma King back on Triple R. Emma's uh, the Victorian Council of Social Service CEO. And uh, good morning, Emma. Good morning and thanks for having me. No worries. And I mean, how do you assess where we are at right now, Emma, with what I've just detailed, but also lots of other factors in, in play, low impl- unemployment, high inflation, and now a dollar an hour increase to the minimum wage? Oh, look, I think in looking at the Fair Work Commission's increase to the minimum wage, it's really, it's really welcome and much needed. Um, keeping in mind that it is about a dollar an hour. So on one hand, like five point two percent sounds like a you know could sound like a lot. In one way, it is, and it's a huge win for everyone who campaigned uh, for it. We know that it's going to make a real difference because if you are on the minimum wage, or if you're on you know the the base award payment, because people who are on the base award payment got a four point six percent increase, you generally you know you're on a low wage, and for a lot of people, they're also not on full time hours as well. So what looks like a $40 pay increase might actually be like a $20 pay increase. And all of that money, though, we know goes straight back into the economy. It's a difference being a, between being able to say, well, actually, I'll get some fresh food or I can pay for my medication or I've got some money to put towards my bills. So it's um, when you look at the huge increase in the cost of housing, of energy, of food and of fuel... It's desperately needed. Yeah, and I mean that that idea that it will go back into the economy, uh, I, I think, has been you know pointed out to businesses that are concerned about the rise. Some have come out and said, "Look, it is mm. big deal for business," but the idea that it will go back to their bottom line. I mean, what's your your thinking around that, Emma? Look, I think there's different ways to kind of separate it out. So we know that there were businesses that fundamentally wanted JobKeeper, so I've got zero sympathy for them. We know there's others that are trying to get by, and I guess, too, I'm pretty focused on community sector employers for whom, in effect, government subcontracts out some of their work. So we're very... at the moment, seeking discussions with government about, well, and how do we meet these increases? Because they're really important. It's really important that workers in community sector organisations that were the, that are, are the front line, they continue to be the front line um, while the pandemic continues and we need to make sure they're paid well but also that organisations can continue to pay them and not have to cut back on services. So I'm particularly focused on community sector organisations and looking looking at how do we make sure that organisations actually get paid for those minimum wage increases as they should and be able to pass them on to employers. So it's a little bit different to your you know your you know your local business that you might be getting your, your coffee from. But just thinking about that in a broader context and you know there's lots of layers in there but for VCOS, the primary focus is very much on community sector organisations. And when does it all happen, Emma? Like, we get this decision from Fair Work. When does it actually kick in? Well, it starts to kick in for a lot of employees from the 1st of July, um, but it is staggered. So later in the year, there's some groups that are coming in. Tourism is one of them. There's a couple of others that will come in a bit later, around October. So it's not like it hits everyone straight away. It is a bit of a staggered approach. Um, And the other thing I think that's important to keep in mind is that, you know, when we've got the Reserve Bank governor coming out and saying, really, inflation is likely to hit 7% 
by the end of the year. What's a significant outcome, because it is, is it being, you know, 5.2% or 4.6% increases, it's pretty startling um, to think when we've come out of an environment of low inflation that we're, you know, we're going to be looking at it 7% by the end of the year. Yeah, and people have um, short short memories and, and forget what it's like to be in these kinds of um, environments, uh, you know, with yeah inflation on the rise, but also interest rates going up. I mean, it's been a very long time since we, we've seen that, that's for sure. But, I mean, when it comes yeah. to housing, again, you know, VCOS has a particular... Um, uh, role here, I guess, in, in in keeping an eye on those on on the lowest wages and and how they're going yeah. with regards to rental vacancies and af- housing affordability. Uh, what's what's the situation? And I guess will this you know forty dollar a week uh, increase to full time workers minimum wages uh, make a difference here? Well, it's a great question because. Housing affordability, as we know at the moment, is just dreadful. So whether you're renting or whether, you know, for the people who are on low incomes and who, who own their own property, but for whom, you know, interest rates are increasing and they're increasing really rapidly. So, excuse me, it will make a difference, like in the sense of that's what we're saying, like every dollar kind of goes back in and actually it's really critical because for people who are, I'm thinking of rental accommodation here where there's so few rentals available, if you're on a minimum wage, it's really difficult um, but one of the other parts here is, you know, every dollar of that's going to be needed to put back into your rent. And the other thing I would call out that uh, I'd like to remain optimistic about is keeping in mind this is for those people who've got a job. So we've still got people on JobSeeker who don't who don't have jobs at the moment, but we haven't seen an increase in that rate. So I'd really hope that that's something that the federal government is going to look at very quickly as well, because we know in a lot of areas uh, there's almost there's pretty much no rentals available um, if you're on JobSeeker or if you're on a low minimum wage amount. So if we're going to keep people you know, safe and at home and somewhere that's affordable and, and suitable to live in, that there's a whole lot of work that really needs to be done on that front. And I'm hoping there might be something optimistic from the federal government around you know, increasing the rental assistance for those who need it, because we haven't seen that for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, what we are hearing from the federal government is discussion around energy pricing, and um, not you know yeah. not just petrol, but gas and electricity. And we'll be speaking really soon um, about the sort of structural stuff with regards to the energy market um, with re- uh, renewable economy soon. But oh, when when mm. it comes to the, the consumers, though, I mean, I got a text from my gas provider saying, look gas prices have doubled, you might want to go and check and see if you're on the best deal. And I, I, I think a lot of uh, retailers are, are doing that, reaching out to customers. But yes. will that make a difference, Emma? Do you think people will respond to that, renegotiate? Um, you know, what, what's your sense there about how people can get themselves in a, in a better position? Look, it's a great question because it's an essential service, right? We all need it. And the challenge that we see is when people don't use their energy, they get sick. Um, you know, we literally have people who contract hypothermia in winter in their own homes. So it's really important for everyone listening to look at how you get a better deal. Um, we know there's about 14% of Victorians who are eligible for a concession who don't get it, and there's plenty of people who are eligible for a better deal. One of the um, reasons we believe is because a lot, 
you know, plenty of people don't have internet access. Um, and be aware that you, know, you can go down to your local neighbourhood house or you can go to a number of organisations such as Brotherhood of St Lawrence, Good Shepherd, Microfinance, um, Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria, who can help you um, if you need a hand as well. And there's quite a few different um, opportunities coming up. One is for those who can, jump online from the 1st of July and check your, you know, that you're on the best energy deal through the Energy Compare website. Um, simply by doing that, you'll get a $250 power saving bonus, which um, you know is going to be very much needed, particularly for low-income Victorians, to be able to actually pay um, their bills. But to make sure you're on the best deal, I, would, I totally acknowledge it's really hard. It's hard to navigate. And that's why I think it's important to make the most of organisations who are out there to help you find the best possible deal. Remembering as well that your retailer is meant to, you know, they've got to put on your bill at once every three months, whether or not you're getting the best um, possible deal from them as well. But I know it's challenging at the moment because, as you just described, plenty of people are getting, you know, contacted by their companies saying, actually, we suggest you go elsewhere. You might not be getting the best deal from us. And that's pretty confronting when you're thinking, but hang on, this is my energy and my gas and or my electricity and my gas. So, um, But do make sure as well that you are getting every concession that you are eligible for. Um, if people are not sure, you can also make a call to the concessions information line. It's a Victorian government line. And the number for that is 1800 658 521. That's 1800 658 521. And I'd really encourage people to give them a call and to see whether there is something that you're eligible for and make sure if there is that you're, you're accessing every concession that you can. Thanks for that number. And yeah, good time to be doing it because really the bills aren't kicking in now yet. It's, it's going to be in that's the coming right. months, isn't it? Because that's when because uh, the, the prices are going up now. We're speaking with Emma King, um, CEO of VCOS. And Emma, I wanted to ask you before we go about this, um, what, what I called a game-changing early childhood package that the Victorian government announced last week. Can you um, explain some of the details of this? And I guess it, it really, you know, we've spoken to you over, over the years and early childhood education has been seen as really an important area uh, for equality, for equity in our community. Yeah. Uh, can you sort of speak a little bit to, to the, uh, the government announcement and what it might mean, particularly for uh, children of families on, on lower incomes? Absolutely. This is so exciting. Um, I feel like it's, it's actually phenomenal. Um, so it's, it's, I describe it as a triple whammy of benefits. So what it's going to do is really boost children's early development and wellbeing. It's going to save families money and it's going to make it easier for women to re-engage in work. So it's a $9 billion package over the next decade. So from next year, three and four-year-old kindergarten will be free. Um, and that's free for everyone. Uh, and then from 2025 up to 2032, there's going to be a new year of universal pre-prep for four-year-olds. So what that's going to mean is for all of the four-year-olds who attend kinder at the moment, they're eligible for 15 hours of kindergarten. As from next year, it will be free. That's going to ramp up to 30 hours per week. And that is going to make a phenomenal difference for kids for their readiness to go to school. Because if they're not ready, you know, if kids aren't ready when they go to school, if they're behind, all of the evidence shows it's 
pretty unlikely that they're ever going to catch up. So that's really critical. And the third part of the package um, is establishing 50 government-operated community childcare, or sorry, 50 government-operated childcare centres across the state uh, that will be low-fee in areas that need them. So they're often described as kind of childcare deserts, so where there, you know, there's so many kids who need places and there isn't enough places for them, but they're particularly focused on making sure that all kids, but particularly low-income income kids get the highest quality, affordable, accessible early childhood education when they need it because we know that high quality early childhood education, it makes a huge difference to the life trajectory of every child, health, economic wellbeing, but it makes a particular impact on the on low income. Um, and potentially vulnerable um, Victorian children as well. So this is a game changer. This is the sort of investment we really want to see in that it goes far and beyond one electoral cycle. It's actually about delivering benefits to kids throughout their lifetime. And there's economic evidence in to show that there's a $13 um, or a 13% return on for every child that's spent, on every, for every dollar, for every child, for every year, over a lifetime, so it's it is a game changer, and it's it's phenomenal, and I'm really excited about it. As you can probably tell, yeah, I can tell, and you know, I I can't help but think of are oh, the kids this year and next year that that yeah. are going to have access to this. I mean, in in one regard, we need to put that to the side, but I, I sort of want to ask you about that for those that have kids that are just in the age group right now and seeing this coming um, down the line, what, what's your thoughts around that? I mean, oh, is there something that we can do for those, those families? Oh, look, I think there's a number of things that it's in place for those families for next year, such as tutoring, etc. that's in place at school for kids to, to give them a, a assistance really early. Remembering that for for um, next year, early, the, you know, kinder will be free. So there are a number of things out there. But I'd, I'd also remind people that we were having discussions around probably 10 or 11 years ago around three-year-old kinder and making it free and kind of told that we were dreaming. And now I'm like, well, now there's three-year-old kinder that's, that's there and now we're seeing this pre-prep year coming in. So the reality is that the, the kind of negotiations around these reforms do take time. There's work to happen around workforce, etc., to make sure we can stand up the workforce that we need. But um, none of that should get in the way of delivering in the long run. And as you say, every child matters. It's a you know that challenge around the timing and, and, and when it actually occurs. But um, there's certainly significant investment that's been made in our school system as well, in terms of tutors, etc., who've been brought in to help kids who might be finding it, it challenging at the you know at the beginning in terms of um, you know. Some of, the, some of the core skills, et cetera, that they need. And, and one of the exciting things I would say, though, as well about the pre-prep year is it is play-based learning. And um, I think we all just know, every early childhood educator out there will know how important this is. So you're right, it's a phenomenal difference. It's a phenomenal difference for kids who are going to make the most of that benefit. There's always that balance in terms of timing because we can't deliver it right here, right now. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much, Emma. Always great to have you on Triple R. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. You too, Emma King, there, CEO of VCOS. Uh, lots happening in the social service sector, and uh, that announcement there that we're speaking about um, was made by the Victorian government last week, and by all reports, uh, yeah, a game changer, but also really um, leading the country with regards to its ambition. Um, so good news. Triple. Ah. Uh. 
energy journalists have been reporting on electricity spot markets for years, uh, but most everyone else has never heard of it until this week, and then only because the Australian energy market operator, AMO, suspended it. Uh, it's extraordinary times when it comes to the way we power our economy, and who better to talk with about this than Giles Parkinson, editor and founder of Renew Economy. Giles and his team have been warning about an unwieldy energy market for years, unless Australia ups the pace of its shift to renewables. And a very good morning to you, Giles. Hello. Well, thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, so we still have a suspended energy market as far as I can see. Uh, you know, maybe let us know what that AEMO organisation has done to keep the lights on, Giles. Well, it's trying to it's just trying to make sure that all the coal and gas and all the other capacity, the you know, the storage, pump hydro, batteries, and everything else there, is available to provide power when it's expected to. Um, you know, it's just been quite extraordinary seeing over the last couple of weeks, basically runaway prices um, because the cost of fossil fuels has just sort of soared, and it's now impossible to produce coal or gas generation at anything like an affordable price. So the market just got carried away and then it got completely out of control because it's, you know, it's not competitive enough and basically the pricing is set by a few very powerful companies. The email intervened, put a pricing cap on it. That didn't work because it created another set of circumstances um, which either sort of forced certain behaviour or allowed um, the situation to be exploited. And so all of a sudden it was scrambling every day, every morning, every evening in almost every state to ensure that there was enough capacity to keep the lights on. So that was a ridiculous situation, unsustainable, and so basically AEMO came in and suspended the market and said, OK, we're taking full control now, and basically under this they can just basically direct people. People got no excuse not to produce anything. And um, that's the only... In effect, it lost confidence, it lost trust in market participants um, to do the right thing, and um, I think, you know, I think a lot of people out there in... Um, in the consumer world are probably losing trust in the system as well because they don't understand why it is that uh, we have this system and yet they've been asked to turn down the power, turn down the power demands. They're facing a big rise in electricity bills um, this coming year. And uh, I guess we're paying the price for 10 years or probably more um, of just not doing anything about the energy transition or not doing nearly enough about preparing the markets and the infrastructure and the rules and the regulations um, for this energy transition, which we so badly need. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you've been speaking on Triple R about this for a decade and um, speaking about, you know, innovation in the market, where things are going well, where we need to pay attention, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of the solutions are known. Um, we did hear the new Minister for Energy and Climate Change, Chris Bowen, point out that renewables aren't to blame here and actually renewables are relatively cheap right now. It's the fossil fuel generation that is driving the price sky high. I mean, is that help, helpful? Like, I, I'm just, I'm trying to cast my mind back a month and think what, what might have happened had this happened under the previous government. I mean, you know, how, how constructive is the, the new minister being here? 
what is it saying constructive um, I, I think a lot of people are just trying to imagine what it would have been like if we had the old government in power now with this crisis and you just be going oh my god what would they be doing I mean it would just be horrendous to even think about look um, Chris Bowen has been presented basically with a shit sandwich um, if you excuse the language um, but he is going to all his all, all, all his statements so far have been very positive he's basically sort of identified what the problem is he knows what the long term solution is the problem is he's probably got not that many options in the short term to, to actually see it because I mean this, this sort of catastrophe has been a long time in the making and it's going to take some time to unwind and it's going to require the changes of rules and regulations and the building of infrastructure and just sort of, you know, just sort of paving the way for all this renewables and the dispatchable energy and the storage to come to come through. But he's making a good start. So he's making positive noises. The Labor government has signed the 43% um, reduction target. Um, they want to put that into law. It's probably still not far enough for many people. It still doesn't quite meet the science, but it's a lot better than what we had before. So it's a step forward in the right direction. They'll probably get encouraged by the Teals and the Greens to, to, to advance that. But right now, they've got this major problem of just ensuring supply, trying to control. Everyone knows that coal generators are going to be executing the grid. It's a matter of managing that and making sure that enough renewables are storage are built beforehand. And that's actually a real problem right now because the rules make it really difficult. We don't have enough um, transmission infrastructure, even though we've known for 10 to 15 years that we should be doing this. Um, and now we've got this sort of global supply crunch. So it actually makes it really hard and more expensive to actually get things and build things. So it's a, um, it's a terrible situation. We're basically paying the price for not having, tr- you know, fast track the transition over the last few years because we've seen in the States which do have bigger renewable shares, particularly South Australia, but also Victoria and Tasmania. They are more shielded, and they're not shielded completely, but they are more shielded from these pricing effects than those states, say, New South Wales and Queensland, which are almost entirely dependent on coal and gas. You wrote a really interesting article uh, about the social licence for fossil fuel generation. Can you speak to that a little? Because I think this is where... I mean, dare I say, like a mind shift or something, where I think the community that um, may have been hearing messages around, you know, the sun not um, shining and the wind not blowing and we can't trust renewables, all of a sudden it's flipped the other way and we, we are really uh, paying the price for relying on coal-fired generation because they're, they're old machines, aren't they? So, I mean, can you speak a little yeah. bit about what this social licence is for fossil generation? Yeah, look, I guess it's best to start with the, with the recognition that energy market is incredibly complex and they involve all these, you know, these, these making sort of transactions and contracts and things like that. And so in all the events that happened over the last couple of weeks with soaring prices and the price cap and the interventions by the market operator, the coal and the gas generators kept on defending themselves by saying, we are taking the economically rational approach. We are doing something. So everything, they, they try to justify everything they did, but well, that's what we would do to try and get more money, or that's what we do to, you know, to, to make our thing more efficient. And my point of my article was, guys, you're kind of forgetting that, you know, you're not selling tickets to a movie theatre or sort of, you know, um, selling apples to the market or holidays overseas. You're providing an essential service. I mean, people need electricity to keep the lights on, to stay alive, to have jobs, to have a comfortable lifestyle. And you guys have made an absolute 
packet of money over the last couple of years, extraordinary amounts of money, billions of dollars, a lot of it not taxed and things like that. This is an essential service. You've got to stop playing games and hiding behind um, these arguments about economic rationality and just understand that you have a privilege and a responsibility of doing that essential service. And you're not doing that right now. You're basically holding the market to ransom. You're hiding behind all these arguments about, oh, well, it's not sort of economically rational for us to switch this on. No, it might not be economically rational, but it's your duty as a social service, as an essential service, to, to do so. And I think that as a consumer, not interested in all the complexities and all those really technical arguments about this, that, and the other things. I just want to know that their life's going to, going to be able to do what they want to be able to do. And they really couldn't give a stuff about, um, you know, all these technical arguments by the energy companies. They expect the energy companies to be doing what they're supposed to be doing, providing power to the, to the home and to the business. And that's where I just think... And, well, I read that article. It was really interesting. I got a lot of pushback from particularly people in the fossil fuel industry saying, oh, you don't understand the complexities and the technicalities of it. And it just really just underlined to me that they had completely lost the plot. They just didn't understand the situation that they find themselves in. You know, people want power. They expect it to be cleaner. They expect it to do something to, on that climate change. You know, and if we can't trust them to actually deliver power to our grid, then how can we trust them to do the right thing when it comes to these sort of, you know, these bigger picture things like environment and climate change and this whole transition? Giles Parkinson is with us um, from Renew Economy, and yeah, exactly. And I was I was thinking, you know, with regards to the steps that AEMO has taken and and suspended the the trading market. Will what will happen next? I mean, is the market considered fit for purpose when when the sort of immediate crisis ends? Will we go back to a, a similar sort of a spot market trading market that we had before? Do you think, Giles? Look, I think that's a big question. People don't know. Um, the market is, well, the market rules um, are not fit for purpose, um, but we've known that for about at least half a decade and probably longer because it's basically a market that's designed um, for centralised fossil fuel generation. And we're now sort of moving into sort of you know, renewable storage, distributed generation, completely different grid. And the whole thing's falling apart now because fossil fuel generation, which was once cheap, or at least appeared to be cheap if you ignore its environmental impacts, is now outrageously expensive because the price of gas is really so high, the price of coal is so high. So look, we might get some short-term respite because a lot of the coal generators which went offline in the last couple of weeks are slowly coming back online, but who knows when they'll get back offline again. They're getting old, they're unreliable, they're having constant breakdowns. The gas price, a lot of people in the market just think we can't see the price of gas coming down. Now, gas sets the price of electricity in Australia most of the time because they're the ones that sort of switch on, you know, the variations of demand and into the evenings and things like that. And when they set the price, it's going to be a very high price. So I'm not too sure how the market gets to manage that um, um, in, in a way that doesn't sort of blow consumers completely out of the water, be they households or, or businesses. So I think if you talk to people in the market, they just don't know how this ends up. The long-term solution is quite clear. Switch to renewables, a change in the rewrite of the market rules. But that takes time. I mean, it's going to take a couple of years to rewrite the rules or make some of the changes. You know, even, even small changes take like one or two years. It takes forever to do because of the complexities of, the, of this, you know, this extraordinary beast that's called the grid. Um, so... 
the answer is yes, I don't really know what well, happens. I don't know how long don't the market can be. How can we know? But I, I mean, just quickly before you have to go, but I, I wonder then about this idea that we are going to electrify our economy. Uh, people will be driving electric vehicles, those that choose to drive. And apparently with the fuel prices sky high at the moment, the inquiries for EVs are going through the roof as well. Can you speak to that a little bit? And I guess this is another area where we might be on the back foot with regards to infrastructure to support a big uh, rise in the number of consumers choosing to, to drive EVs. Well, that's right. Yeah, look, uh, and the consumers have a lot of options here. So we're actually also seeing them, uh, new interest in rooftop solar and battery storage, and that's good. And Australia pretty much leads the world, uh, one of the leading ones in the world. We're behind on EVs. Um, we have our website called The Driven, um, which sort of focuses on, on EV subjects. And it's just extraordinary the amount of interest is that's out there. And we've known for, a long, for about a year or two that there's many people out there who think, this is my last fossil fuel car. Um, or mechanical fireboxes, as we call them. Um, you know, my next car is going to be electric. I'm just going to wait for the time when I can afford one and one suits my lifestyle, be it an SUV, a wagon, or whatever it is that people want to drive. Um, now we're just seeing the people getting sick of the prices of, of fuel and of petrol and diesel, and they're really interested in going out in the market and they're buying whatever they can find. The sad reality is, is that there's a global supply crunch for both petrol cars and electric cars. Australia has hit really badly because we're at the end of the line for the delivery of electric vehicles in the world. One of the reasons is we have no standards at all for vehicle emissions, so many of the car companies have to send the cars to Europe or to other places to meet to help meet those standards, which set an average emissions for their whole fleet. Nothing like that exists in Australia, so they don't bother with the Australian market. They send a token amount. Um, we've seen some models come out, and there's some really nice electric cars coming out at the moment. They're still pretty pricey, and the prices are actually going up um, because of the increase in supply costs, but also they can get away with it because of the demand. They're really nice cars. And the demand for them is about 20 times the amount that they can actually deliver. So we've got this extraordinary situation where we're seeing second-hand electric vehicle pro- vehicles being sold on the market um, at Higher, at higher prices than, than they paid for them brand new a couple of years ago. That's quite extraordinary. Um, and, but it's really frustrating for people because a lot of people do want to go electric. They do want to have an affordable car. Um, but it's just really hard to get one at the moment. Hopefully that changes over the next six to 12 months. But right now, the waiting list for most vehicles is, is at least that long. Crazy time, Giles. Thanks so much. No, thanks for having me. Uh, Giles Parkinson there from Renew Economy. And, uh, yeah, you can head over to the Renew Economy website for updates. Um, They're reporting on all sorts of different issues to do with the um, net zero transition. You're on 3RRR. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.